I have the privilege of coming in and, and sharing the message, you know, with you guys. Um, my name is Alex Cornett. Um, you know, I'm one of the elders here at Grace, but more importantly, I'm, part, I'm just a part of a small group of people. Actually, it's not really small. I mean, you know, it's kind of a large group of people that we call them, affectionately call ourselves the teaching team, um, which means that we're this team of people that puts the teaching together every week. Imagine that. Um, so anyway, uh, so when somebody comes and stands up here in front of us collectively and talks to us, us whether it was John or Bailey, did it last week and she just did a wonderful job. Um, you just know that the message is not, it's not Alex. It's not just what I think. It's obviously coming from a collective perspective. And so I just think that's a healthy thing to know and it's a healthy way for us um, to operate, uh, you know, as a church. Um, the other thing, too, is uh, I really, uh, in the work that I do, so I have the privilege of bringing the message to you today, but in the, in the work that I do, I get to facilitate and talk with groups all the time, and I prefer it to be a little more interactive. So I'm going to hopefully try to create space for that this morning. Uh, so what I'd like to do is I'm, I'm getting ready to uh, get into the text. I want to set that up for us this morning, but I'd love for, if I could, to get three volunteers to actually read different sections of the text. And so uh, it's, we're going to be in Mark 6. Um, if you could have a New English, tra- thank you, or whatever you've got, it's great. Uh, Marsha, could I get you to be ready to read Mark uh, 6, 1 through 6 first? And then who else? Ah, we've got Tasha back here in the back. Tasha, if you could read Mark, when I, when I cue you, um, could you read Mark uh, 6, 7 through, eh, 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 let me look at my notes, make sure we got it right. Seven through 13, and then who's got the last one? Sean, did you raise your, you did? Okay. Could you read Mark 6, 14 through 29, I believe, through the end there. So thank you for helping with that this morning, you guys. So um, yeah, uh, matter of fact, let's, let's put this picture up here that I have for you guys. I, I don't know. Have you guys ever heard the, 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 you know, the, the, the saying, like, who, who was the first person who actually saw a chicken lay an egg and say, gee, I'm going to eat that? Um, I've always cracked me up, right? Well, I feel... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here for another 20 minutes. Um, so I, I think the same thing when I, when I, when I think about, uh, you know, an elephant being, you know, con- you know, tamed and ridden by somebody, Right. Like, like, who was the first person that saw that big, unruly beast and think, I think I can get on that thing and ride it? Like, like what fool was that, right, you know? Uh, and so, you know, I, I put this up here because uh, I want to use it as a metaphor, you know, for today. There is a book out there, uh, I can't remember the author's name, but the book's titled um, uh, The Happiness Hypothesis. And in, the, in this book, the, the author uses this metaphor of an elephant and a rider. And in, the, in, his, in his metaphor, the rider represents, you know, kind of our, the rational thought that we have, right? The, the elephant so, sort of represents, the, um, as in his metaphor, represents our emotions, right? And so a lot of times we think, you know, rationally we think, oh, I've got this, right? Uh, but there's all kinds of things going on down here with our emotions that may that may, uh, you know, that may make it more challenging for us to really understand, are we being rational or 
are, are our rational, is our rational thought really control, controlling everything? What's so funny about this is like, typically, you know, you see this picture of a rider and an elephant and you think, ah, oh, he's got him under control, right? But at any point in time, that elephant could just, if the elephant didn't want to be controlled, he could go rogue on us, right? Um, and so I really feel like that metaphor is a good one for us to use today as we get into this uh, message. Works well with, it works well with my experience, particularly as it relates to belief. Like, what do I believe, right? In addition to, in, in my metaphor, though, in addition to our emotions, the, the, the elephant represents other things for me, right? It's, it's experiences I have. It's like, it's like where I was born. You know, what, what books I read, what, you know, how my, you know, the culture, the microculture that I, you know, that I grew up in, right? The fact that I have two parents. The fact that I have two parents that constantly told me I could do anything that I wanted to do, that I could be, you know, whatever I wanted. Like, those kinds of things are also represented by, you know, by my metaphor, right, the elephant. Those are big things that are constantly uh, informing me. The church I grew up in, we were just talking a little bit, right, like about that whole church experience that you had growing up, how that can, how, how that can inform us, and the theology that we were raised with. Like, it's, it's all there. It's all there underneath us, right? Um, in my metaphor, the, I'm still going to have the writer represent, you know, represent rational thought, right? But here's what's interesting. Um, I, in the same way, I think I'm often in control of the elephant, Right, like my rational thought as I'm sorting through things, I feel like I, I got this right, but I really don't. I don't fully understand everything that's always going on, and particularly when you know our our lives are going like this, and we're constantly thinking, we're constantly being, uh, uh, we're presented with new information that we're internalizing, we're processing, and then you know that's where our you know our thoughts are coming are coming from. That, Does that makes sense, by the way. Is my med- did my metaphor break down? Because every metaphor will break down <laughs> eventually. It probably will happen halfway through this message, and you guys will go, oh, that was a bad idea. Where'd the elephant go? Um, by the way, hello to everybody out there on Facebook that's watching. I wanted to say good morning to you guys as well. Um, so uh, in my metaphor, still, the right, I want that writer to represent the rational thought. Um, and I often think my rational thoughts are true reality honestly, um, that they are right and I'm actually in control of the elephant. Um, I fail to recognize my version of reality as not necessarily what is true. I'm likely being informed by a much larger, maybe more powerful narrative and it's causing me to believe the way I, I believe. And then there's also this interesting cultural thing that happens, right? Um, would you th- flip that slide up there about right or wrong? Um, I mean, we're, we come from a culture that's been training us from a young age um, that, that being right has value, right? You think about being in school. Like, there is this, you know, you get the right answer <laughs> or you get the wrong answer, right? How many of my teacher friends are out here, right? We have a lot of teachers here. And that's not saying that that's bad, but it's creating this psychology in us, right? And if you're right, it sort of affirms or inflates your self-worth, right? If you're wrong, man, it comes with embarrassment. And, um, and I think in some ways, our desire or our need to be right is interfering in a lot of cases with our ability to truly understand what's going on around us. And we're going to see it today in, in this text, right? Um, 
And as a matter of fact, I think in some ways we have lost the ability as a society or a culture to actually have good discourse because we want to be right. And so in our, in our society today, I think a lot of what we're facing is our, you know, is our inner, like we just want to be right. And so we, we argue to the play, or we want to be on the right side of things, right? We don't want to be on the wrong side of things. And I, I don't know, it, it's creating a really tough, let's just put it that way at best, tough um, cultural situation that we wrestle with. So this week's text from Mark 6, 1 through 29, reminded me how hard it is sometimes, right, for us to be moved from our position or what we believe to be true. It keeps us from doing what is right sometimes or what we know to be right. Uh, Jesus could not find honor in his own hometown. We're going to talk about that. Why? Why could he not find honor in his own hometown? You can almost hear it, right? Well, it's because he's just a carpenter's son. Like, what could he know? Or wait, you know, he's the... He's the bastard son of Mary and Joseph. <laughs> you know, how could he be saying the things that he's saying, right? Um, um, and in my experience as well, particularly working with groups of leaders all the time um, who usually come at me, um, let's, one thing's true about a lot of leaders that are at the top of an organization. They're there for a reason. But a lot of times, the, one of the things that they lack um, is humility, Right? Because that's, that's not how they got there. Right? They, they got there by, by being good at being right and insistent and being strong. And, you know, and so it's a lot of times working with them to help them be a more pliable, more vulnerable version of themselves as a leader, which actually makes them more worth following for folks, is, is a challenge. Um, and so, but one of the things I do know is that empathy and that kind of thing can be learned. Um, just requires us processing things a little differently. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's uh, it's often deep, um, imbe- deeply embedded in causing folks to actually transform themselves. Requires patience, humility, um, deep and lasting uh, love, agape, and the courage and willingness to question things in a way that might disprove uh, what what I and what they believe to be true. Um, it's not simply formed by right thought. So. Uh, pray with me as we start to jump into this text for today, and let's see what God has, has for us, okay? I actually want to just have us be quiet for a moment and let the kind of the cacophony of small voices that might be running around in your head, let them calm down a bit. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us today. Melt our cold hearts. Uh, Give us a new heart. Help us to better see that new heart that you have maybe already given us. Teach us what it really means to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Move in us, stir our hearts, not just our thought, but our will and our desires. In your holy name I pray, amen. So, our text this week has three parts. Jesus being rejected in his own hometown, um, the disciples being sent out to begin spreading the news to, the, to repent, and they're actually being given power to heal, uh, and then uh, John the Baptist, baptizer, is going to get beheaded. 
Stay tuned. Ready? Here we go. All right, so Marsha, Mark 6, 1 through 6. Wow. So, here he is, Jesus. He's gone back to his hometown, right, of Nazareth. He's doing the same thing that he's been doing other places. So let me ask a question in the spirit of being interactive this morning. They're seeing and hearing something, but they're not, they're not accepting. They're not seeing, actually seeing what's going on there. What's going on? Why? What's possibly in the way of them accepting? Matter of fact, in most, in most hometowns, if you had a hero like Jesus, what would you do? You'd erect a statue to them? I was back, it was Troy Aikman's town, like little Oklahoma town, not too far away. Like anytime you go back there, that's all. It's Troy this, Troy that, right? Like, why are they not erecting a statue to this guy? Instead, it's quite the opposite, right? What's going on? Why, what's, what are they struggling with? Why can't they see or hear? So you're saying it possibly because it validates or invalidates something about themselves. Okay, yeah. I mean, it basically says in, the t- in, in other versions of the text and in here a little bit like they were, they were, in some way they're offended by what he's saying. They're offended by what he's presenting them. Anything else? Ah, they're looking to the past. They're, they're looking at what, what you know, that, that thing that they thought to be true back there. And like, it's not, they're not actually open to what's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah, he is a part of that past. Yeah. I mean, that, there, is, there is raw data there, right? Like, he grew up here, you know, he, he spent, time, like, like what, they're, what they're saying is not untrue. But somehow or another, they've processed it in a way that, you know, kind of makes them blind to the reality of, of who he is. Any other thoughts? You know, I think you're, you guys are spot, spot on. Let's, let's explore this potential elephant they're riding. Because <laughs> that's, in some ways, that's this is what we're talking about, right? What keeps them from believing what they are seeing? Um, obviously, we said, right, they were offended um, by what he was saying. They didn't like it for whatever reason, doesn't say specifically what he was saying, but the message that he had been giving up until that point in time in a lot of other settings was, was repent, right? You know, the kingdom of God is here. He's probably even alluding to himself as, you know, as, that, as, as, as the son of the, the fulfillment of prophecy. So, you know, they, 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 they were struggling to imagine that. It didn't fit their narrative, right? Maybe it was uncomfortable to hear. Maybe it was really uncomfortable to hear. Regardless, it, it, it turned around and it informed their responses, and they began attacking his credibility. Yeah, he's just a carpenter's son. 
you know, Carpenter's sons aren't educated enough to be able to, like, where's he getting this from? There's no possible way, right? Or, or hey, we've been talking about, you know, the fact that, you know, uh, the, his um, suspicious roots, you know, Mary and Joseph, we've been talking about that around this town for a long time, you know, and now, like, there's no possible way, he being the bastard son of Mary and Joseph, could he possibly be the one bringing this kind of wisdom to us, you know? There's just no way. I can't get, I can't get beyond that, right? Um, so um, I want to use a, a piece of information that might help us really think about this, because I, want, I, I think it's really easy for us to say, how could they possibly miss it? How could they possibly miss it, right? Like, we're sitting back here looking, uh, uh, armchair quarterbacks, <laughs> you know, backseat drivers, like, we're, how could they possibly miss it? Well, I'm gonna sh- I want to show you how it's possible so that maybe we can think about it in our own context and understand if it happened now, would we miss it? Would we, would we be saying the same things? Um, would you put up that s- slide? This is going to be, can you guys see that okay? All right. Um, so let me explain this real quick. This is, how, this is how we form our reality, right? This is how we form our reality. It usually starts with real data and an ex- and experience, okay? Which, which means this. It, it's almost like, a, imagine a video recorder or a tape recorder. Like it's recording what's happening. It doesn't lie, right? It's, it's, it's capturing everything, you know, as is, Right? But then what we do is we actually take that real data and that experience and we actually select data from that. We select a portion of that. We don't, we don't, we're not always able to process all of it or we don't understand it. Or, as we mentioned, the elephant we're riding causes us to pick the data sometimes that we think is important, right? That we see as important, right? And then what happens is we take that data we've selected and we affix meaning to it. Then we take that meaning and we create our assumptions, we draw conclusions, we establish our beliefs, and in a perfect world, what we do is we would take appropriate actions that would actually give us new data, but we would look at the whole, right? And that the reality, we we would continue to challenge ourselves to let let me look at all of the information that's out there in front of me, all of it, right? But instead, what we do is we take action, and a lot of times that action reinforces what we believe to be true. And what it does is it actually cuts the corner. So we've cut. We've, instead of, we, we've taken an action that supports what we believe to be true, and so it's giving us data that's actually narrower. It's a narrower sliver of data, right? And so we just keep, what happens is our reality, our reality gets smaller and smaller and smaller. At least our perception of reality gets smaller. When in actuality, what we need to be constantly doing is trying to figure out ways to create a larger purveyance of that data set. Well, how do we do that? Ladies and gentlemen, we do that in community. We do that with one another. That's why when I stand up here in front of you with a microphone, you know, you have to challenge everything I say, right? You need to. We want to have good dialogue around this. We need to have good discourse. We need to be able to ask one another questions and challenge one another without feeling like we're being attacked or without feeling like we're, <laughs> we're being offended, you know, or whatever. Like, we, if, we don't, if we can't do that, we're not going to be able to keep that reality loop, right? Because Cody doesn't see the world the same way I did. Darrell doesn't see the world the same way I do. Right? Because Dwell's had a whole different set of experiences in life. What's informing Dwell? Like, 
me sitting with Darrell, or, or me sitting with you, Suzanne, right? Like, it, would, it, it helps me to see maybe what the real what reality really is and allows me to open up my data set. So think about this in terms of what we just, what we just read, right? So real data was... You know, Jesus is saying what he's saying. He's right there in front of them. He's telling them these things. The, you know, he's performing miracles. And also, it's also true that he was born in that town, that he grew up in that town. All of that's part of the data set, right? He's a carpenter's son. You know, Mary and Joseph were his mom and dad. All that is true. But then what's happening is they're selecting data. And then what they're doing is they're fixing meaning, making some conclusions, beliefs. They're taking actions, and they're cutting their corner not allowing themselves to potentially open, you know, open that back up. So they can't get beyond their uh, own narrative, right? So here's the question. What's the elephant we're riding? What's that thing that's underneath us or the assumptions that we're making and deriving that are keeping that loop small? Well, I, let me just throw a few things out, some things that I've even thought of for, about myself, right? How often do I want to protect my own safety and comfort over the safety and comfort of others? What am I afraid of? Am I willing to give up my rights and privileges so others can have dignity? Um, Sometimes we prefer to be right more than we prefer to accept what we know is right. I'm guilty, right? I can think of times when I would argue just to be on the right side of things, right? Or to, and, and I might completely miss something that's bigger. You know, the truth is, we argue over doctrine while the widow weeps, the poor go hungry, and our chairs get pulled so closely around the table, there is no room for anyone. Uh, Teresa and I had the privilege um, Friday night of going to see uh, Hank Willis Thomas. He's a photographer and artist and uh, one of, uh, I'm not going to try to explain all of the things that I absorbed as, as I looked at his art um, about society and about some of these things that inform us, but one of the things that he said is this, um, the most revolutionary thing a person can do is to be open to change. And I thought, wow, that's pretty powerful, right? And I remember a quote that, I mean, Nelson Mandela basically said the same thing in another way, right? He said, the hardest thing was not to change a society, or a country, the hardest thing was to change myself. You know, if we don't, he, he knew that in order to fulfill this bigger purpose that, that he felt like he was called to, that he needed to be able to change himself. And so how, it just begs the question, how do we break down our own paradigms? How do we learn to really understand? Well, let me give you one clue. So uh, would you put that uh, passage up from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, please? Let me read this to you, and I just want to dwell on this a second. So, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face-to-face with you, but bold towards you went away. By the way, I think there's a little sarcasm, a little snarkiness in there, but anyway. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So the most frequent interpretation I've heard of this passage over my years is this idea of taking um, thought, thoughts captive had to do with my moral failings, you know? Like, oh, I'm having a, a thought about a woman. I shouldn't have that thought captured, right? That, that's the way I've been tra- trained growing up. And I, that's not that that's wrong, but I want to bring some new fresh light to this. Because if you look more closely, Paul is claiming they're succumbing to the standards of the world. He admonishes the church at Corinth for seeing it that way. But he says this, we demolish arguments and, I dare say, thought that set themselves up against people knowing the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. He's, he's demolishing arguments, not, you know, he didn't say thought. I had thought, but arguments and thought, Right? that set themselves up against people knowing the kingdom. What if the thought we are to take captive is really that first thought that we have about people who are different than we are? Those thoughts that cause us to respond to people in a way that keeps them from the knowledge of the kingdom. Our need to be right does that sometimes. Granted, our moral failings can impact others, and they often do, right? Um, but we rarely talk about the more subtle prejudices and conversations that guide our thought life that may be more damaging and less popular. Uh, we've, we don't want to talk about the elephant we ride. <laughs> we just don't, right? Um, we do not wage war the way the world does. Uh, what truly demolishes strongholds in people? I don't know, maybe seeing them as equal? Maybe seeing them with dignity? Maybe seeing them as, you know, humanity, which Jesus loves. <laughs> Our weapon, folks, is love. Love demolishes strongholds. There's nothing else I can think of that does that until I really, really love somebody and I'm willing to insert myself into their suffering. I'm willing to be a part and party to what they're struggling with as opposed to wanting to be right or wanting to see them um, fixed by, me, by my hands. By the way, that would be super dangerous, just so we're clear here. (laughs) So, um, yeah, the only way we're ever really going to break down our paradigm is to be able to take those thoughts captive and submit them to the model that Christ gave us. That's how we're going to do it. All right, who's got uh, Mark 6, 7 through 13? Ah, thank you, Tasha. Thank you, Tasha. So I really want to focus on three questions here. What were they doing? What were they wearing? Because that's kind of interesting. (laughs) Um, And what were they saying? I want to focus on those three things. Um, By the way, it's it's hard not to let current context inform me in some of this stuff, so you guys check me. Make sure I'm not going, you know, too far off of the rails here. But um, this whole whole thing about Jesus sending his disciples out in twos, um, 
you know, by the way, as the adversity grows to the message of the gospel, later on he starts sending them out in, you know, a little bit larger groups. So there, there's, something, there's something about that. Um, so we've long been a church that organizes ourselves and proclaims to be the kind of place where everyone is a minister of the gospel. We've said that for, gosh, honey, I don't know how long. For as long as I can remember, we've talked about this notion that very often uh, what, we, we, what we have experienced in our church life is, um, you know, it's easier to pay somebody to do that. It's easier to find that full-time person to go to the hospital and visit the sick. It's easier to, to have somebody else take care of those things for us. I, I think if we do that, we fall prey to, um, to neglecting what we're actually being you know, called to ourselves, right? And so we've, not that we've got it all figured out, not that we're right, but we've tended to create this tension in, at Grace where we're, we're going to, this is not a do-it-yourself church, but it's a do-it-together church. You know, we're going to minister the gospel together because we're capable. Uh, Teresa was sharing a funny article this morning. This lady said, like, I don't want to go out, Jesus. Matter of fact, don't, don't send me. Don't, don't, don't send me at all because I haven't, I haven't taken the course on how to, uh, how to cast out demons yet. I haven't, you know, I haven't fixed that whole, you know, got that whole thing figured out about, you know, uh, about how to, how to share and heal and things like that. Give me a little more time so I learn how to share and heal and cast out demons, and then I'll, you know, I'll be ready to go. You know, I don't think that's the, what, that's the way it works, particularly given what we're being asked to do. I don't know that it's, that it's that hard. I don't need to have a whole bunch more intellectual ascension or just to be right. I don't need to know more in order to do some of the things that Jesus is telling us to do and telling his disciples to do, right? Um, so that's our context, right? Everybody, what is that? But what does everybody being a minister of the gospel really mean? It really kind of, for us, I think our working definition would be sort of as we're going. Like as we're going and as we're encountering life and we're encountering other, the people in our life, that we are, that we are ministering. We're constantly communicating. By the way, we're always communicating something, constantly, right? As a matter of fact, 80% of communication, Abwe, 80% of communication is nonverbal. So even if I don't always understand what you're saying, Sometimes your body or my, you know, my body will communicate or what I am doing will communicate more so than words, right? So that everyone can lean into this work. Uh, it's truer now than ever before, right? This world is hostile. It's more hostile now than it's probably ever been, at least in my memory. And I've been around a lot. I've been around longer than anybody in this room. No, almost everybody in this room. Okay, close to everybody in the room. Um, and the more we attempt to run a different course, by the way, the more challenging it's going to get. Um, but we can't go out on our own, right? Or look to others to do this work. We ourselves, each of us are called, and we must all come together. We have to do this together. He sends them out in twos. He's, you know, he does that for a reason, right? I think he's getting them, you know, knowing that they're going to need to support one another because the task is not going to be easy. If we are to be effective for the kingdom, we have to do this together. Um, this is not the work of just a handful of us. It's not like, oh, hey, let's let those folks handle it and, you know, it'll all be good, right? Like, it doesn't do us any good to say this as a church and then for us to turn a handful of people into a multi-headed pastor. It's, that's, that's not going to work, right? The idea is that we're all leaning in to this work um, together. We're encouraging one another and drawing the best of, in one another out as we go and do this. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what they're wearing, because this is kind of funny. Um, so he sends them out with basically nothing, right? 
He tells them, he tells them what, Tasha? Do you have that? Like just basically being completely vulnerable to the situation that they're about ready to walk into. Um, but did anybody grow up with this book uh, or uh, familiar with this book called Dress for Success? Jay shaking his head. Jay is always a sharp dresser, just so we're... Dress for success, right? Like it's, it's this uh, cultural idea that, you know, if you want to be successful, the first thing to do is you need to, you know, people sample with their eyes first. So come in, wear the power tie, you know, you know be dressed so that you are confident and you're, you're able to convey the message that you need to convey. Well, think about that in this context. Why did, why did, uh, why did Jesus not say, no, I want you to go out and I want you to dress to look like you have authority? in this situation. Maybe wear royal clothing or, you know, and by the way, we're going we're gonna to give you some money to throw, you know, to throw around, right? Um, we're going to, we're going to, people are going to see you and they're going to respect you pretty quickly because of how you look or, or, you know, who they perceive you to be. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And I started to ask myself why, Right? I think one of the reasons why for me is Jesus knows this message has to stand on its own. I don't want anything to interfere with this message because this message is important, right? There couldn't be any detractors, right? There's, anybody see the, ever go out and look and click on the little uh, Instagram page called Preachers and Sneakers? Yeah. Just for fun, go, go out there. We're not, I don't have a slide for you, but right? It's just uh, somebody somewhere is like, oh, isn't it amazing? You know, look at how these preachers get up and then they take pictures of their shoes and they're like wearing $5,000 shoes and such. It's really quite funny. But anyway, enjoy that on your own. I'm not going to take you there today. Um, but the question I ask myself is, can, can people really hear the message of we take care of the poor if we have an ornate temple to ourselves for worship. I mean, is it harder? And again, I'm not, I'm not throwing barbs here, but I just wonder, is it harder? Like if, if I say to you, well, we're all, we care for the poor, but yet everything in my life, the things that are communicating, the 80% of my body language that, that's communicating, <laughs> you know, or the 80% of you know, what I don't, the, the things I'm not saying that are communicating actually are communicating stronger than what I'm saying. So he asked, he asked them to go out in a completely vulnerable fashion, and they had to rely on others, which is another part of the thing that I, I think is interesting. He tells the disciples to stay in the house, right, Tasha? He says, get to know people. However, if you're not welcomed, if you're not welcomed or people won't even listen to you, then move on. Move on. So he wasn't, he wasn't saying they don't stay and talk until they agree with you, right? Until they see the, it's like he's just saying, no, your first cut point is are they really even willing to listen? You know, if somebody's not willing to listen, that's the only way, again, kind of our challenge with good discourse in this day and age, right? We just, we're not even willing to listen to one another. If you're not even willing to listen, chances are you're not going to have, you're not going to have a, a real grasp of the real data and everything that's going on around you, right? So he says, hey, if they won't listen, that's probably your clue, you know, 
Forget whether you get a chance to share the message of repent or not. If they're just if they're not even willing to listen to you, if they're not being hospitable, if they're not, you know, if they're not welcoming to you, then, then just don't, don't spend a lot of time there, right? So oh, that would be my next question around this. You know, what, uh, what are we in the posture of listening? Or are we in that posture of listening? Uh, for me, is it in my prayer life? <laughs> am I in the posture of listening? Or am I more in a posture, am I, in, am I inquiring of God and saying, God, what is it you have? What is it you have for me? What is it you have for us? Tell me more. Speak to me more. Or am I more in the posture of advocating? I'm listening so I can advocate for my belief or my point of view or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for my comfort, God, you know. Um, I think there's a balance in there. But what are we listening for? Last, real quickly around that passage is what, what were they sharing? Their message was pretty simple, but not easily heard. Relatively simple. It was repent. You're going to, it wasn't you're going to hell unless you turn around. That wasn't what they were saying. They were saying repent. So what does it mean to repent? Let me give you some ideas. Repent means to change your mind, to change your way of thinking, change your way of living since you have heard something. Be open to something new to happen to you. Let the inner person change. You are a new creation. Gwendy, you're a new creation. Repentance, then, is informing and changing the mind thus stirring and directing the emotions, the elephant, <laughs> to urge the required change and the action of the yielded will in turning ourselves and others to God. That's what it is, that we turn first ourselves. We're given a new heart, new creation. We're a new creation, and then we begin to turn so that we can turn others to God, Right? Our working definition of sin, by the way, at grace is not a list. It's a principle. Anything that causes us to turn away from God or keep others from God or turns others away from God, it is likely as evidence, too, when we turn people against each other. We probably see a little bit of that happen, you know. It's unfortunate, but it happens. It's sort of the opposite of, of the commandment. Yeah, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind. Love your neighbor. Like the, anything that's the opposite of that <laughs> or is causing the opposite of that is probably... Probably not good. All right. I'm going to keep us moving here. Uh, Sean, you've got the long one.
Thank you. Because of his oath to his guests. I mean, you get the idea, right? That Herod actually liked John. Even though John was kind of bringing hard news to him, right? Herod had an affinity towards John. It's interesting, uh, in Luke and Matthew, I believe this, 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 the story of, of John ends up kind of towards the front. Uh, matter of fact, in Mark, we hear right at the very beginning when we started studying Mark together, um, we got this, uh, this glimpse right when John the Baptist was introduced that he was arrested. But then Mark leaves the story. He doesn't finish it there like the other gospel writers do. He actually brings it back in at this point in time. The writer brings it back in to the to right here in this in, at this point in the narrative, and I thought, why? Like last week when Bailey was talking, right? She talked about there was those two, there was a story, and then there was a story embedded in the story, and the writer did that because I think they're trying to do something. Same thing here, like he's trying to bring something to bear for us to consider. Well, the first thing I do know is this: this is the first real potential setback in Jesus' ministry, right? Up until this point in time, I don't, wouldn't say things are going great, but they're going along pretty swimmingly. And now he's actually taken his disciples, he's commissioned them, he's sending them out. And you can imagine, right, this message is blowing up. He's getting more and more credibility, more and more, um, more and more, uh, uh, he's becoming more and more known, right? And then all of a sudden, boom, There's this brutal wake-up call. It's harsh. Living in the kingdom, living out the kingdom of God is hard, right? It's not supposed to be this easy thing necessarily. I mean, we're not always going to run into beheadings, but, you know, I mean, the reality is here you go, everything's going great, and then all of a sudden, bam, John the baptizer beheaded and gone. And as a matter of fact, if you're thinking about it from their perspective, it would be dissuading. Like, oh my gosh. And the truth is, the whole of this text, I think, is sort of painting this premonition or this picture of what's about to happen to Jesus. They probably don't understand it yet, and they don't see it, right? But like, hey, it would be very easy to say, I think I want to be one of those disciples. Yeah, <laughs> it's cool. Like, this is the cool guy, and he's, he's, he's hip right now, and he's happening. It's like, whack. Whoa. Would that be enough to cause me to, to step away? Herod is actually um, uh, just, a, a, I think, a pawn in all of this in some ways, right? But he's also, you know, I think he, is, he has created this web. He's actually... This web that he's, he's created is of his own making, right? He's not, a, he's not even aware of the element he's writing, to continue that metaphor. Um, he's a, his, his political position, uh, his desire to save faith, tradition, um, you know, his like, he cannot, he cannot, he's caught up in this, you know, in this web as well. Not able to change his thought, even though he has an affinity for John, even though he likes John, even though, Yeah. It's interesting. Um, the work of the church is not easy. It's right. It's not for the faint of heart. It's just not. I think we often glamorize it. It's not. It's just not easy. It's going to cost us something. Uh, this whole narrative is really counter to the Walmart gospel of pay less, live better. 
It's, it's counter to that. It engenders the idea of embracing sort of a downward mobility. And willing, even joyfully giving ourselves, expecting nothing in return because of what we've already been given freely. That's the gospel. That's what we are, that's what we are standing in for as the church. And it's revolutionary. It's a message that was unpopular because it sought to include everyone. That was not a popular message to those who already felt they were included by birth, right? Or righteous because of their own making. It was not comfortable. It was not easy to hear for those who were so entrenched in what they thought as right belief they could not even see or hear. By default, it upset the status quo, which was threatening to those who were actually part of the status quo. Transformation requires that we are constantly open to and willing to change. So, about 20 years ago is when Grace Church started. 20 years. Think about it. Teresa and I became a part of Grace Church almost from the start. A lot of others that are here have been with us a long time, right? We, we, we got involved because we we saw the potential for the church to be different. We'd come from a very good and healthy denominational background, and we thought, yeah, but there was still people out there that were being missed, and there was potential for us to do things a little differently. It wasn't just because we wanted to be different or we thought everything else was wrong and broken, but we, we, were, we saw um, this opportunity um, and we hope for something different, a place that expanded the table. We're about ready to take communion together today, right? We, we practice open communion here. You know, we want that table to be expanded, not to be narrowed. We want uh, more to feel welcome. We don't want them to feel, feel, to feel closed because this is the way. Jesus is the way. That's the message that was being shared that is, needs to be shared now. That, that, that's the way. And so we have to create space for folks to come and find, find Jesus. It's no different today for us. We see the need even more in this fractured, broken world where being right seems to take precedence over being Christ. For a place that welcomes the niches of society that are not always readily seen, let alone welcomed, by even the most well-intentioned churches sometimes. God's will being done on earth here as it is in heaven. God's message of love for all humanity being spoken to all, more so with what we do than what we say. This is still my hope and prayer for grace. And we've not always done this well. <laughs> you know, for those long seasons, there have been times we've gotten off track and felt like maybe we stumbled. It's not without struggle, right, honey? Not without grieving and pain, suffering. In spite of our challenges uh, in, as a church in living this out, I am still very hopeful. That idea of being a place that can fill a like I don't what if what if today we could say, oh well, look, ninety nine percent of the population are Christian and they believe in Jesus. I think I would still say, yeah, but what about that one percent? Like, what about that last, like, I don't think God has given up on that last 1%. I think he wants it all, right? He wants us all. Yeah. I want nothing more than to see the message of the gospel permeate every fiber of our being and overflow to those who come in contact with us. 
I want to see it break down every stronghold. I want to see this table, his table, opened and filled to overflowing. Like, that's my imagination. It may be ill-placed, it may be <laughs> janky, it may be lofty and untenable given you know, where we are. I don't know, but that's what I dream. That's what I hope for. And I don't think we can do it by ourselves. I think we have to agree that we're all going to do it together, that we want that greater purpose. It's not our purpose, right? But that we're willing, that we're willing to put ourselves and our needs and our things aside for something that's bigger than us. And what's better and bigger than the gospel of the Lord Jesus?